Amen, brothers. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, as you know, is our text for tonight. And I hope that you did some good reading and studying. We don't provide a ton of questions for you guys, but I hope that you guys are working hard through those questions so that they might um, spur on good conversation and discussion in your small groups. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And I want to read our text before I begin, okay? If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their, dis- in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. The title of the message tonight is really pinpointed for this particular passage, and it's Unhypocritical Christianity. Unhypocritical Christianity. If I were to ask you tonight, what do you believe are the most significant distinguishing marks of a mature Christian? What would you answer? What are the most significant distinguishing marks or traits of a mature Christian, what would you answer? Have you ever considered that? that? There are many things that we can answer, right? I've asked that question of people before, and some of the answers they've given to me include things like knowledge, right? They know a lot about the Bible, and thus they're mature people if they know a lot about the Bible, and that could be true. Experience, they've lived life, been around the block, are street savvy with regards to the ways of the, of the world, etc. Experience means that somebody is spiritually mature. They're respectable or dignified, etc. In other words, they know how to carry themselves well. They live lives that are worthy of respect, worthy of being emulated. That's the kind of a person that is a mature Christian. A person who's dignified and, and respectable in all of that. Those are some of the answers I've received over the years, and and to some extent or another, those could be be evidences of a mature, spirit-filled believer. They may be true of, of a Christian who is the real deal, if we could put it that way, who is the real deal. James has already contributed to the discussion, hasn't he, in answering that question of what does Christian maturity and genuineness come down to? In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, he talks about mature Christians having a, a godly response to trials. That shows our Christian maturity. How we respond to trials, whether we are understanding that our trials are to strengthen our faith, right? He talked about in, John, in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25, he instructed us about a godly response to the word. Mature believers are those who not only are hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Those who appropriate God's word to their lives. And really at the heart of that is the fact that a mature Christian will be known by by humility. In particular, humble teachability characterizes a mature believer. But now in our passage, James contributes further to the discussion about what real genuine Christianity, what mature Christianity is all about. And he says three different things that we're going to look at tonight. He talks about self-control. That the spirit-filled Christian is a person who is about self-control, that you know how to say no to yourself, no to your flesh, and in particular, in a specific area that we're going to talk about tonight. 
That this is a distinguishing mark of maturity. That you are a person who is about self-control. You know how to say no to yourself. Then he's going to talk about charity. Charity, love. That you are a person characterized by love for other people. And we'll talk about specifically towards what kinds of people. And then the third thing that he, James says is chastity. You are a person who is holy, who is sincerely being like Christ. That's the mark of a mature person, the mark of a believer who is spiritually growing up. This is where James is going next. So watch this. As far as the flow of, of thought, right? If verses 19 through 25, brothers, were an exhortation to proactive, deliberate obedience... Now verses 26 through 27, still in the same flow of thought, are going to put some meat to this obedience. Here are some areas where we need to be applying God's word in particular. And these verses, verses 26 through 27, challenge you and I to consider what unhypocritical Christianity looks like in three very particular areas. Okay, and we're going to outline our points in relation to self, you'll see in relation to others, and then in relation to the world. After all, salvation has implications for all three, right? People talk about salvation and becoming a Christian, that it's this vertical thing where we, by faith, are reconciled to God, and that is absolutely true. That is, first and foremost, what needs to happen, right? Sin is an affront to a holy and just God. Jesus has come into the world to absorb the sin, the, the, the wrath of God for our sin. And by trusting in Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to a holy and just God. We become his children. We are adopted into his family. We are forgiven. We are granted eternal life, quality and quantity of life. Salvation is first and foremost, yes, a vertical reconciliation between us and God. Amen? By faith in Jesus but then flowing from that vertical relationship, there are implications for everything else in life. Now that you've been made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, now your relationship to yourself, to your sin, has also changed. You no longer love your sin, but you now hate your sin and you want to become like Jesus. Your relationship to the, to the world has changed. You're no longer called to love the world, neither the things in the world, but to actually um, engage the world with the truth of Christ to be salt and light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. So your relationship to the world changes from one who adopted the thinking and the patterns of the world to now saying, hey, I want to bring Christ to bear upon everything because I am now salt and light as a, as a missionary uh, in, on this earth. And then your relationship to others has changed. You no longer seek to exploit others, to use others for your self-pleasure. Now you want to serve other people. So our salvation has implications for all of these things. And James deals with all of those particular categories in this letter and even in this passage as we're going to see. So he begins here. If you're taking notes, he begins here by telling us that with relation to yourself, you should practice self-control. With relation to yourself, practice self-control. That's in verse 26. Now mark it. This self-control is applicable to all of life. We could talk about self-control in every area of life. We are to be men who are self-controlled. But you will notice that James zeroes in on an area that is often neglected. And that is on the use of our mouths. That of the use of our tongues, brothers. 
the use of our words, the things that come out of our mouth, our speech. Look at verse 26. He says, if anyone, in other words, this is applicable to to anyone listening to this message. All are to examine themselves right now as you read this text. All are summoned to do a serious heart check. None of us in this room are exempt if you're reading and studying this, this scripture, right? If anyone thinks he is religious, in other words, if you're a person who, who fancies himself as pious, you're that man who, who fancies yourself as, as spiritual, that you are a true worshiper of the one true God, and you claim that, you profess that with your lips. James says, here's a litmus test of your spiritual maturity. Let's see how honest and unhypocritical you really are in the practice of your Christianity. Let's see if the inside matches the outside. Let's see if your profession matches your practice or vice versa. If your practice matches your profession. Again, this gets us into the the question of who really are the spiritually mature amongst us, right? We wrestle with that question, don't we? Again, some say the knowledgeable, some say the intellectual, some say those who have been around the block for a while are the mature believers. So James wants to help us with that. He says, if a person fancies him or herself to be the religious, to be the pious, to be the spiritually mature, and yet this person, look at verse 26, does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this man's religion is, say it with me, brothers, worthless, sobering words. Serious words here. The imagery is of a, of a horse and a bridle. That small mechanism that a rider places inside of the horse's mouth, which allows the rider to direct and to control that powerful animal called a horse, right? In comparison to the horse, that, that bridle is, is very small, very tiny. But it has the power to influence that powerful horse for the good or the bad. That tiny bridle, in comparison to that powerful animal, controls that animal. That's how much influence it can have. And you see the connection? You see the connection there? Like a master illustrator, James is picturing our tongue as a wild horse left unbridled. As a wild mouth left unchecked. Left unharnessed, as a tongue that is out of control. Let's see how spiritually healthy you are, he says. Let me see your tongue, says James. Ah, right? Open up. Like when your doctor says that, right? And he says, stick out your tongue. Why does he ask that? Because it's an indicator of what's really going on. He's checking the vitals, isn't he? James is doing the same thing in the spiritual sense. He says, let me see your tongue. Let's examine it, and I will tell you how spiritually mature you really are, how spiritually stable you really are in the way that you use your words. It's the same thing with us on the spiritual level. Listen, when we have mouth trouble, brothers, then it's an indication that we have heart trouble. Did you hear that? When you have mouth trouble, slandering, gossiping, bad-mouthing, being harsh to your spouse, to your kids, to your grandkids, to another brother or sister in Christ, in the workplace when nobody else is watching you, but your coworkers are watching you and you blow your testimony, right, as a Christian in that environment, when you have mouth trouble, then it's an indication that you have heart trouble. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, 
Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, our words are an indication of what's happening on the inside. Gossip, slander, evil speaking indicate that something is terrible, terribly wrong in the inner recesses of your heart. Very convicting, isn't it? As we begin to survey our lives, even just this week, think about it. Just today, how did you use your tongue? And not only did you, do, did you say something bad, but did you use it to edify other people? Did you share things that would build up other people that were constructive rather than destructive, that were healthy rather than hurtful, that were helpful rather than harmful? How did you use your tongue today? Look at the text, verse 26. If you cannot bridle, that is control or keep in check your tongue. And the verb there, by the way, about bridling your tongue is a present tense participle. Present tense meaning continually, habitually as the pattern of your life. In other words, you're known for this. You're known for having a loose tongue. You're known for speaking things that are evil, that are destructive, that are harmful towards God and others even. If what characterizes you is a failure to control your mouth, a failure to control or keep your words in check, then here are two things that are true about you. Look at verse 26. One, you are deceiving your own heart. You are deceiving yourself about your spiritual maturity, about where you really are spiritually as far as growing in Christ. If you cannot practice self-control in the use of your words. Maybe you're not as spiritual as you think you are. Kind of puts spiritual maturity in perspective, doesn't it? I've thought about people as I studied this particular text again, brothers. People that I really thought were very mature over the years, and yet, in surveying their life, honestly, one of their weaknesses was they were gossips. They were people who always had something negative to say about somebody else. What does James say about that person? Are they really spiritually mature as I thought they were? Maybe in some areas, but not in that area, right? They weren't as Christ-like as I thought that they were. Two, not only are they... Are you deceiving your own heart? But notice what he says also in verse 26. He says, worse, this person's religion is worthless. Worthless. Underline that word. It's a word often used to describe or appears in the context of pagan worship. In other words, the vain worship of idols. And what James is saying is your perceived religiosity is, is fake. It's counterfeit religion like the pagans. It's not the real deal if this is what you're known characteristically for, being a, a bad mouther. You don't control your tongue. You do you're not bridle your mouth. It's convicting, isn't it? Boy, James is not pulling any punches here. He puts things black and white. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 Jesus did the same thing when he said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That's serious stuff right there. You say, well, that's for the great white throne judgment, right? When Jesus, uh, when Jesus um, judges the whole world, uh, the non-believer. Well, also the Bema seat, remember that? The judgment of believers, not salvifically, because our salvation is based upon the, the person and the work of Jesus, Amen. Otherwise, we lose our salvation every single day. But at the Bema seat, we are going to be judged for our careless words before our Savior. I don't know what that looks like, but we will be judged for that. We will have to give an account for the words that we speak to our wives, brothers, for the way that we speak to our kids. 
for actively tearing people down, even if in our own hearts. We need to repent of that and confess that. Don't miss the implication here. If you cannot practice self-control in the way that you use your mouth, in the way that you speak, you have some serious self-examination to do tonight. Or maybe you've already done it as you prepared for this time tonight. Self-control in all areas, especially in the area of the use of our words, is an indication of the fact that we are in Christ, but also of our spiritual maturity in Christ. Now let me ask you, are we going to be there perfectly? What do you guys think? I'm certainly not there, man. None of us are perfect in this area. Of course not. But the habitual, consistent pattern of our lives, even in confession and owning up when we are destructive with our words towards our spouse, towards our kids, towards others, even in our confession, the pattern of our lives is going to be one of self-control, one of brokenness and humility in that area. One of being reminded at the foot of the cross of the fact that Jesus died for those kinds of sins. So we want to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, even in the way that we speak. Healthy speech is what we need to be known for. It's a fruit of the spirit. You know this. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? Against such things there is no law, Paul says to the Galatians. Galatians 5, 22 and following, those who have crucified the flesh have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. They're not going to be known for unhealthy speech, destructive speech. They're going to be known for self-control by the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 29, write that verse down and memorize it if you haven't. Ephesians 4, 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, in other words, it needs to be timely, that it may give grace to those who hear. Listen, the, the genuine Christian is not to be characterized, he says, by corrupting talk. That is putrid talk, he says. Toxic speech. Speech that tears people down. Instead, what, is, what do Christians need to be known for? We need to be known, brothers, for speaking edifying words instead of words that tear down. Constructive words rather than destructive words. Healthy words rather than filthy words. Helpful, healing words rather than hurtful and harmful words. And men, listen, especially for us who are masculine men seeking to be biblical men. Husbands, fathers, grandpas, brothers, neighbors, all of us as men. We need to watch our mouths, me included. Amen? We need to watch our mouths. You know the old saying, the old adage, sticks and stones will hurt my bones, but words will, what, never hurt me? <clears throat> Untrue. Right? How many of us have not been the recipients, whether in our childhood or later on in life, or even recently, of words that were hurtful words? whether they were intentionally said to us or unintentionally hurtful. Maybe somebody didn't mean to hurt us with their words, but they did. We've been the recipients of that. Words are powerful. Words have lasting impact. How many great speeches have we heard in the history of mankind that have begun movements? Movements in history. Think about Nazi Germany. You know that story, right? And what happened there? 
That man was a great speechwriter and maker. And he led a destructive movement to harm a particular people. Adolf Hitler. How many words have influenced the destruction of lives, the tearing up of homes, the hurting of relationships in the, in the church? How many words, brothers, have impacted the trajectory of a person's life? You know how many people I've counseled in, in the past who are still trying to put people's words that were uttered to them in right perspective in their hearts. Still trying to forgive as Christ has forgiven them. Still trying to believe what the scripture says now about them as a child of God rather than what their parent or their father or mother or some sibling told them. Many, much counseling has, has taken place. Listen, words matter. James is going to expand on this later on in chapter 3 and we're going to see this extensively the use of the tongue and of our words. So first of all, here's an area that we need to self-examine with relation to yourself. Are you practicing self-control? Specifically in the area of how you use your tongue, how you use your words. Secondly, secondly, write this down. With relation to others, practice merciful love. Practice merciful love. That's the first part of verse 27. Here's another mark of spiritual maturity that James wants to examine and have us examine. He's already exhorted us to be unhypocritical with regards to the practice of self-control, right? He now tells us what unhypocritical religion looks like in two very specific areas of our lives. Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled, in other words, religion that is, that is free from moral pollution, free from moral evil, he means, and notice, before God the Father, verse 27, ultimately that's what matters most, isn't it? Not what people see, but before God. That's the most important thing. Because who we are before God is who we really are. Not who we are before other people who are human beings, sinners saved by grace, just like us. So he says, before God the Father. True, unhypocritical religion in God's sight is this, verse 27. It's this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. James says, you want to know what genuine Christianity looks like as well? Show loving mercy to others. Cultivate a heart of mercy. And in particular, he is feeding off of the historical context of the audience that, to whom he's writing here. He says, toward orphans and widows. Two categories of the most needy people in society during those days. That's true for them, especially in the light of their poverty-stricken circumstances. Go back and listen to the introduction to James that we did. On their poverty-stricken circumstances as they're dispersed outside of Palestine, these Jewish Christians for the most part. They're suffering and there's a lot of orphans and there's a lot, there are a lot of widows there. He says... This is unhypocritical religion to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And that idea of, of visiting there, by the way, it was not a haphazard visitation. It wasn't like, well, I'm going to go visit them for five or ten minutes, and then I'm going to kind of move on despite the needs that they might have. This visit here has to do with, with visiting with an aim towards supplying the needs of these precious people who are in need. With an aim to supplying needs, to identifying needs. In other words, it's intentional. It's deliberate with the goal of displaying genuine mercy and meeting practical needs. That's the idea here. He's not talking about some five-minute, haphazard, checking-the-box kind of a thing. 
It's motivated by a real, genuine heart of loving mercy. It's what James is saying. Now listen, James is not saying here that the following two things, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, and the other one that we're going to look at, comprise comprehensively what genuine Christianity is all about. In other words, that if you do these two things, then you are truly a Christian or even a faithful elite kind of Christian. That's not what he's talking about here. There are certainly other areas, as we've seen already in James, that comprise faithful Christianity, genuine Christianity. But what James is doing here in verse 27 is merely giving us a sampling, listen, of a sampling of two areas that are often overlooked or neglected in the Christian life, that of charity and chastity, that of mercy and moral purity, that of love and holiness, often overlooked often overlooked in the Christian life. And in particular during this time, orphans and widows were at the top of the list of neglected and often ignored people. But there are others that we can put in that category as we're going to see right now. This is why often throughout the Old Testament, God's justice is spoken of in the, in the context of caring for the, the least of these in society. And at the top of the list were orphans and widows who were the most vulnerable people and needy people in society. So they're often spoken of in the Old Testament. Write these verses down. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 18 says that, that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So there, God's justice is displayed as he cares for the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner, the person from a foreign land. He says, God displays mercy toward them. Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 10 instructs us, do not oppress the, the widow the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Couldn't even be clear, right? There's this category of the least of these, people who are often ignored or neglected, and we must care for. Mark chapter 12, verse 40. If you note the context in that particular passage later on, Mark 12, 40, it's when Jesus condemns the religious leaders and he characterizes the religious leaders as hypocrites who devour widows' houses. He says, you religious leaders, false shepherds, at the top of the list of people who are exploiting others, amongst whom are widows. Shame on you, religious leaders. Jesus calls them out. Listen, God cares and is concerned for all people in the church, but especially for the least of these. So much so that in Acts 6 and later on in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it's evident that one of the groups of people that God did not want the church, the early church especially, to neglect were, were widows. Widows. And there were even lists that were kept with specific qualifications or guidelines as to who legitimately would um, comprise a, a, a widow indeed who was to be cared for by the church. Amazing. God desired that his, his church, birthed in the book of Acts, would even have deacons who would be ministers of mercy, who would be directly responsible and overseeing under the, the, the watch of the pastors and elders the caring of the least of these amongst people in the church. At the top of the list, orphans and widows. Further, have you noticed also as you read and study the life of Jesus, what kind of a shepherd was Jesus? Jesus was ever so mindful, brothers and sisters, of the least of these in society, wasn't he? 
always caring for others, those who, who people would ignore. He shared genuine compassion toward those people who were neglected, who others would treat with indifference, widows, but also the sick and the outcasts and paralytics and the diseased and epileptics and the deaf and the mute and the, even the leprous whom people would stay away from. Jesus would engage these people from a distance even or personally, right, with a touch. Think about the heart of Christ, a merciful, loving Savior. That was not by coincidence. Jesus made, it, made time to minister to the least of these. He was mindful and merciful to the least of these in society in very practical ways. It follows then, brothers, to James's point that we too must care for the needy. We too must be concerned for the least of these amongst us. You ask Pastor Kempis, in our day and age, what is an implication? Who might this be that would comprise the least of these? We'll consider people even unintentionally who we often ignore or are treated with indifference amongst us. Some intentionally, mostly in a church like this that is healthy and that is godly and Christ-like where there are a lot of servant-minded people, mostly unintentionally we might do this. Consider single parents. Single parents, often neglected, often treated with indifference. Single moms even with children right, from pre, a previous marriage or a previous relationship? How might we come alongside of single parents, single dads, single moms, right? Obviously, a caution for those of you who are married is not to do that on your own if you're married, right, ministering to a single mom, but maybe you and your wife can come alongside of somebody, and even you can be a dad in some capacity to the child of that single mom within certain sanctified parameters and protection, right? You need to be careful, there are ways that you and your wife can help. Or maybe if you're, if you're single, maybe you can come alongside of folks in this particular situation. Single parents might comprise the least amongst us in the sense that they are often ignored or treated with indifference. What about widows and orphans? Explicit in our text, right? Explicit in our text. Along those lines, perhaps folks with foster care children or adopted kids. You know what? You bring into your home, when you make a decision as a parent to bring in a child, a foster child into your home and eventually adopt them, you know what you bring into your home? Pain. Pain. Because of the child? No. The child is a blessing. But everything that's taken place with that child, the abuse that that child brings into the home, the sadness, the hurt, the baggage, the experiences... There's a reason why that child is winding up in your home. You bring in a lot of pain. And you know what those people need, those families need? Some of us to come alongside of them and love on them and display merciful love like Jesus would display. Amen? Some of us are in a position to do that. Brothers, some of you are doing that. And praise the Lord for you that you are doing that already. Praise God. Excel still more. Others of us need to be more intentional as we look at this text and the implication of this text. Am I practicing merciful love towards those who tend to be treated with indifference? Those who are often ignored amongst us. Amongst those foster care children, adopted kids, or families that have done so. Perhaps families with special needs family members. Think about that. Special needs family members, either children who are special needs or adult children who are special needs or even spouses who are special needs within that particular marriage. 
You know, we have a growing ministry here at Compass for folks with special needs. It's called Compass Friends. How many of you have heard of that before? See, all of us should know. You need to go home tonight, and you need to open up that, uh, the, the website, Compass Bible Church, and go and look up Compass Friends, and look up the Buddy Up system. That you can actually, uh, there's a process, right, of evaluation and vetting, but you can actually come alongside and be a buddy or a shadow for one of these kids and assist families with special needs family members. And you could be a huge blessing facilitating date nights for parents with special needs children who need that time with one another. There's so much that we can do, brothers. There is a process, obviously, but inquire at least. Get informed, become educated as an implication of this text, and then go from there and see how you may be able to help. Maybe it's not you physically doing it, but maybe you can facilitate others doing that as you're educated, right? May I give you a couple more? What about those who are sick amongst us? Often ignored, often gone because they're sick. How often do you check the prayer sheet to see how you may pray or even offer your help for those who are in need? For those who are suffering, so those who are experiencing terminal illnesses, how often do you check the prayer sheet? Maybe, hey, Pastor Kellen, can, would you mind if I give a phone call to that particular person? Of course. We're never going to tell you no. Of course you can do that. Can I bring them a meal? Of course. As long as they don't have any dietary restrictions, go at it. Go care for these people. Go care for your brothers and sisters in Christ who are sick. What about our elderly saints? Think about that. Often ignored. Treated with indifference, right? Especially those who are on hospice, who are no longer physically able to come to church. Imagine you one day being on hospice. You're going to be so lonely. You're going to think you're abandoned and forgotten, right? Nobody thinks about you anymore. Wouldn't you want some brothers to come and visit you? Of course you would. Think about that, brothers. Often, often some of these dear brethren have so much wisdom to offer too, by the way. Some of my best times as a pastor over the years is visiting elderly saints who are on hospice because they love to share their whole life story with you. All of the history. Everything that's ever happened to them. Right? And our visit ends up being three to four hours sometimes for me. And I, and I often don't even know how to say goodbye, okay? So, such blessing. I've learned so much. And I know some of you have done that and are doing it. Praise God. We need more highly committed participants caring for the least of these amongst us. See, this outreach thing extends far beyond just a couple of categories, right? He's a, James is simply giving us a, a sampling based on his own historical reality and those of, of his audience. But this is all about a heart of mercy toward all. That's the principle that we derive from here. A heart of loving mercy toward all. Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 says that as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially to those of the household of the faith. Galatians 6, 9 and 10. Memorize that text. We are to be doing what is intrinsically good, intrinsically beneficial for all people, especially to those of the household of the faith, to our church family, or for our church family. And men, we need to be on the forefront of displaying this heart of mercy. Well, you know, Pastor Campus, as I'm hearing you this, I'm thinking about things that my wife can do because she's got a much greater heart of mercy than I do. Women, you know, are far better than we are at this sort of thing. And you know what? That's true. My wife is a lot more compassionate and a lot more merciful to the for the least of these than I am. Truth be told. Okay? 
Having said that, brothers, right? Let that not be an excuse. Let that not be an excuse. We better make sure that we don't justify or excuse our sinful neglect or indifference toward others. Whatever it looks like, man, we need to be mindful of giving our time to care for people or help others to do so. Joe Spurgeon. Talk to Joe Spurgeon about the next time that they're going to do a work day for Compass Bible Church where they're actually going to go and serve some of the least of these amongst us who are not able to do some of those physical tasks. Some of you have experiences. Some of you are able to do so many things, right? You're handymen, experts, masters at your trade. Why not volunteer with Joe Spurgeon and others so that you can jump in on a Saturday like that and care for the least of these amongst us? That's a couple of hours well spent on a Saturday, isn't it? Instead of watching the latest football game. Nothing against watching a football game, okay? But you get my point. And in case you need motivation, read and reflect. Sometime Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Write that text down. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. A a sobering text where Jesus makes the point there that one day future, on judgment day, there will be a divine reckoning. We will give an account for our deeds. And then there's this refrain over and over again. To the extent that you did it for the least of these, you've done it unto me, Jesus says. In other words, when you display kindness and mercy toward others, it's as if you've done it to me, says the Lord Jesus. That's motivation, isn't it? For me to be a merciful, loving man of God. So with relation to yourself, practice self-control. With relation to others, practice loving mercy. Thirdly, write this down. With relation to the world, pursue moral purity. Pursue moral purity aggressively, brothers. Holiness, Christ-likeness. Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Unstained, morally undefiled, morally pure, morally clean, We've talked about self-control in the area of the use of our words, charity or love or mercy, compassion shown towards the least of these. James now says, you know what else shows that you're the real deal? That you're spiritually mature? Practice chastity, moral purity, grow in holiness, grow in Christ-likeness. We saw that in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, right? Titled that message, The Relentless Pursuit of Holiness, that we need to be like Jesus as godly men, We've been given the tools to to do that. He's simply reiterating this utmost priority. You say you belong to Christ? Are you keeping yourself unstained from the world or are you drinking the Kool-Aid of the world system around us? Are you taking what is being offered to you? You know, we can't leave the world, right? We can't leave the world unless God takes us from the world. We know that, but you've heard the old adage, we live in the world, but we are not what? Of the world, See the distinction, adopting the world's thinking, embracing the world's ideologies, thinking fortresses, priorities, practices, passions, pursuits, all of those things. Later on in James 4.4, I told you this in our introduction sermon, that that is the climax of the letter, James chapter 4, verses 4 and following, and in the climax of the letter, James will say to them, you know what your problem is? You are worldly. That's your problem, Christian. 
You adulterous people, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's saying, you want to go to bed with the world? Then God is not your husband. But if God is your husband, he will not share you with anyone else. He wants you to be morally pure, whatever it takes, whatever drastic measures you need to take to be holy, to be like Christ. That's what God wants. He doesn't want any rivals. He's not going to share you with the evil world system. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Couldn't be clear, right? You need to be morally pure, brothers. Not adopting the world's thinking and patterns. You know, one of my all-time favorite books to read, and I think I've read through that book three or four times over, I don't know, 25 years or whatever. But it's been so healthy for my own soul. It's a book that I would recommend to you, The Memoirs and Remains of Robert Murray McShane. How many of you have ever read that book? Man, you need to. The Memoirs and Remains of Robert Murray McShane. He was a godly man, a godly pastor in Scotland in the mid-1800s. And he died at the age of 29. Like if you read about him and the impact that he had on different pastors and all of that in his day, and then pastors who followed him decades later, you wouldn't think that this man died at the age of 29, given the impact that he had had. But many came to know Christ and grew in Christ because of his influence. What was the key to his spiritual success, to his impact and, and his profound influence upon people? What was the, the secret to this man's impact upon other people? He wrote this, Above all things, cultivate your own spirit, your own soul, is your first and greatest care. Seek advance in personal holiness. It is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister, and I might input in there, a holy man, a holy father, a holy husband, a holy grandpa, a holy workman in the, in the workplace, a holy neighbor, right? Amen? A holy minister, a godly man, is an awful weapon in the hand of God. One word spoken by you when your conscience is clear and your heart is full of God's spirit is worth 10,000 words spoken in unbelief and sin, end quote. You see that? More than anything else, man of God, what the Lord wants from your life and my life is that we would be morally pure, holy, Christ-like men. You know what the greatest need in your home is? That you would be a holy man of God. You know what the greatest need for you as a father is? That you would be a holy Christ-like dad, daddy of young or adult children. You know what the greatest need for you, grandpa, is these days? That you would be a holy man of God. Yes, even in your latter days, you can have a profound impact upon the next generation. Amen? You know what the greatest thing that you and I can do as brothers in Christ? That we would be holy men. You know what the best thing that we could do for Compass Bible Church in South Orange County is? That we would be holy men collectively so that we would lead a movement of revival in this terrible area. Amen? 
where people are depending upon their possessions and so much junk out there, rather than Christ putting their trust in the passing pleasures of, of sin and of this world. Holy men of God is what we need. Christ-like men, brothers. May the Lord help us be that. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you for the clarity and the impact and the conviction of your word, Lord, even for my own heart, and I trust for my brothers as well tonight. Father, thank you for the book of James. I can't even imagine, I can't even fathom the critics in church history who didn't see James as having a place in the canon of Scripture. Wow. Thank you for inspiring James, the half-brother of our Lord, with holy Scripture. Scripture that is so pinpointed for the lethargy and the complacency that we see in our world around us, even infiltrating into the church. Father, help us move in us. Help us to be passionate, Christ-like men who are about exalting Jesus above anything rather than exalting self. Father, keep us, protect us. I pray that we would be the husbands that we need to be, the fathers that we need to be, the grandparents that we need to be, the workmen that we need to be, the neighbors that we need to be, the brothers in Christ that we need to be for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen.